Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and welcome wherever you are in the world joining me today. For the next couple of weeks, I've got a series of interviews that is actually focusing on the Women in AI Awards, um, all the women that won awards on the um, evening that uh, Andra Miller from Jewel Rock put together. It was a phenomenal evening, and to any of our audience listening, I'm sure you would agree in congratulating Andra um, just on this uh, spectacular evening that she put together, um, all the nominations, all the women there, um, all the sponsors, it was absolutely um, something to see and behold. So thank you to everyone involved making it such a fantastic evening, especially the sponsors. My first guest um, is Professor Angie Abdullah. Angie is a Palawatrol Woolway woman. She is the founder and CEO of Old Ways New and works with indigenous knowledges and systems in the design of places, experiences, and deep technologies. As a consultant, she works as a designer. As a published researcher, she presents topics such as human technology interrelations and indigenous design in the built environment. She is a member of the Global Futures Council on Artificial Intelligence for Humanity as part of the World Economic Forum co-founded the Indigenous Protocols and Artificial Intelligence Working Group and is a Professor of Practice for the University of New South Wales Faculty of Art, Architecture and Design. Angie, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Nikki. You've got a phenomenal bio and to all our audience, I'm actually going to be reading everyone's bios uh, just as an introduction to these phenomenal women in the coming weeks. You are the winner um, in the, as I said, the women in AI Australia, New Zealand in the creative industry categories. Well done and congratulations. Thank you very much. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and um, maybe throw in some of the challenges you've faced along the way? Yeah, okay. Um, I guess the the journey really has been um, quite a unpredictable one. I never ever imagined that I would be working in this area. I come from um, I come from a long line of storytellers and I used to be a filmmaker and in that life I saw how the nature of uh, film and documentary was changing rapidly because of the intervention of technology. I saw how the industry was, was being shook up in such a dramatic way because of uh, various new different types of streaming and different platforms and the actual nature of, tech, of story itself was really shifting the way that we have engaged with story and that the format and, the, and that engagement and interaction within um, well, we, what I called story, what then became content was quite phenomenal over quite a short period of time. And I remember witnessing this and thinking, my God, if, if I look at the history of storytelling, if I look at just the history of film and TV, 
it's quite incredible what's going on right now. And I, I remember thinking that's powerful. There's something incredibly potent and powerful in the way that technology has the capacity to change this entire sector almost kind of overnight. So I, I became really interested in technology and I thought if there's going to be um, a way of being able to continue to be, I guess, continue to be a storyteller, but continue to, to I guess, fuel that curiosity and fuel that, that interest and drive in an area that I could see had so much more potential, that was it. And I knew nothing about technology at the time. All I knew was that when I, from, a, I guess, a creative perspective, when I was experiencing really incredible works within a within the context of you know galleries and museums it was often moving image you know it was it was um i guess an installation environment and and the way that that technology was able to to um expand and suspend time in the the using the role of story using the role of of culture various different cultural practices Technology had the had and and absolutely still does have this phenomenal capacity to to shift and bend and suspend time, and that I think is is pretty interesting. It still excites me. So I guess you know the challenges that over the years have been many. <laughs> um, when I think of the most significant challenges, I guess. I guess it's the still now, you know, even just yesterday, I was talking about the work I do with AI to a friend, a male friend, and instantly the sort of heckles were going up, I could see, because he didn't understand what I was talking about. And so there was this assumption that, you know, like that I see how this plays out in all sorts of different realms. Yes, I'm a woman, and I'm and I'm talking about a um, a tool, a particular domain that is, you know, wrapped up in all sorts of different stereotypes and, you know, collective imaginaries that have been fueled by the film industry mostly. But I think it's also even more difficult for a lot of people to think that an Indigenous woman has something to offer, and let alone our culture has something not just to offer, not that AI can offer something to our culture, but our culture can actually inform and shape the way we dream up the future of AI. So what did you do with this particular conversation? How did you manage it? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I chose to speak a little bit slower <laughs> and, um, and explain that the tool itself, there's a lot of assumptions about the tools that, when, that we use. Technology, and in particular AI, is just a tool like many others. And the tools that we conceptualise and design and develop programmatically are a product of our culture. So it's humans that are part of that loop that are absolutely central AI does not run off and go wild without, without humans having accountability 
in in the you know I guess in the in those situations and the cultural conditioning or the cultural um, prerequisites and the cultural factors that are always at play need to you know there needs to be a light shone on on those particular cultural attributes because that is really what is at the basis of the technology that we're designing and developing so you know if we look at you know where AI goes rogue or where you know there are issues within technology often it comes back to the cultural conditions and so my question always is you know how do we how do we get to that point how do we actually bring people back to the cultural protocols that are underlying that are often invisible but how do we make present and visible those cultural conditions and therefore interrogate them and, and reframe and reestablish what they are so that we're mind that we're all mindful about our role within this domain. Definitely. You know, I was on a panel yesterday, uh, robotics and how we're integrated in our lives. And I think one of the points I made, there's anyone working in robotics or AI, I see it as our responsibility to educate people. And you have to bring it down to basics because I started rattling off about my telepresence robots that I uh, import and sell here. And I actually uh, took a step back and I, I asked the audience, do you all know what a telepresence robot is before I go off on my merry way? You know, we, we make assumptions because we work in this field that people should know what we're doing, which is absolutely the incorrect assumption to make. So I always, um, and I think hence, the robotics and maybe AI field having such a bad rap is because we make assumptions that people know what we're talking about and we have got no idea what the again cultural conditioning is about robots and AI and what do they know and what don't they know so um, I think maybe for you and I maybe specifically for me I must have like a set of questions before I get very enthusiastic about what I'm doing and go now first up do we all know what I'm talking about so yeah yeah. yeah, and it's the role of story, you know, like how yes. uh, how do we bring people along with us yeah. and how do we um, ensure that the particular cultural rituals and practices are, in, that we're really mindful of those different cultures. Uh, I guess the, you know, that, that we're creating the right culture and the right the right particular practices within develop within a developing well, research and development yeah. so that so that we have the capacity to to not just I guess try and um, uh, find ways that the existing tools can be effective with and have good impact, but actually look at the tools themselves. It, you know, there's a lot of assumptions about AI and a lot of people in the, that I come across have, have a, um, I guess, you know, a lot of, I guess people just, just accept that the tool is the tool. And actually I'm always far more interested in interrogating, well, hang on a second. What's the tool, what could the tool become yeah. if we understand the capacity for us to explore the, the very essence of automation? Yep. 
And so within that, you know, we need different ways of thinking, different ways of understanding how the world works, different ways of being able to see where, you know, for example, in like how does automation occur in country? You know, that's typically where we always start from. What, are, what did our old people do? When we think of ancient technologies and the sophisticated systems that have supported the oldest continuum of culture on this planet, on the driest inhabited earth, the driest inhabited continent on the earth. Like, of course, there was some incredible ingenuity that came from those old ways, those traditional knowledges, those traditional ways of understanding reciprocity and social and environmental sustainability principles and practices. Practices, so not just the principles and the values, but how it translates into the practice. That's what protocols are. They're not just values and principles, they're active. And so what are they? How do they underpin all of those, those technologies that are still resonant, have still have so much resonance today and so much of a role within our communities and within country, like, you know, the oldest, like the most sig significant fish traps in Brorona that are an incredible example of so many different types of sciences and incredible design principles and, in, um, and a phenomenal ex example of international governance. Um, there's so many different um, ways you can look at that one particular system, that one particular technology, and look at it from all these particular different angles to see how, how phenomenally uh, advanced that thinking was. It's still, it still manages to regulate the river and the uh, the natural resource management of that place and that community over thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Imagine if we had AI that had the capacity to do that. Imagine if AI was was fundamentally um, its purpose was precisely just that, the social and environmental sustainability of our people and this planet. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm, that's what I'm working towards. So your company in many ways is apt, old ways, new. Tell us, tell us about the work that you do there. Uh, so predominantly the work is all centred around how these ancient knowledge systems and, of course, the, the various different custodians and elder knowledge holders and elders that we work with um, to support this work enable us to, enable us to, to, to go back in time to understand how these different systems have, have worked over, over millennia to inform a methodological process that enables us to work in uh, the capacity of design, research, design, and the development of new technologies. And that's done primarily through a, a cultural practice. It's done through um, really believing in community engagement, not just 
doing it because you need to, actually really believing in the values of it. We do it through establishing good governance because we believe in it, not because we have to, but we really believe in regulation, technology. I think in a, technology innovation is better through good regulation. And we do it through um, with outputs such as creative outputs, but always looking for the opportunity for those creative outputs to inform a practical implementation and for the and for the benefit of the community. So we're, we're, we ask ourselves throughout the entire life cycle, who benefits, who really benefits, not on the surface, not, not the, the, the pitch or the marketing and communications or the appeasing of stakeholder groups, who genuinely is benefiting at every single point along the, the different phases of that life cycle. You, I'm just sitting here listening and I'm trying to put together like all the work you do and my head's spinning a little bit here because you, you've got a lot of things going. Tell us a little bit about the Tracker Data Project. Uh, it's uh, one of the most beautiful collaborations I've ever worked on. I'm very, very fortunate to have these two dear brothers that we've that I've been working with for over four years now. So Adam Goods, um, absolute legend people know him as an, a legend but knowing him he really is a legend he's more than what people understand um and baden palthorpe also absolute um incredibly beautiful human being and very very clever um incredibly clever artist and so the three of us have been working together essentially because Adam had the opportunity to explore how his AFL player tracker data could be utilised um, in, in another form and to, could be used to support something else. We had no idea what that would be. We All we knew was that it was important. I knew that the data was important. I had a hunch. A lot of the work that we do starts off with a hunch. Yeah. Um, and... It took Adam a really long time to, 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 to even, you know, he was so generous with his data, it actually scared me. I was like, brother, do you know, are you sure you want to do, you want to give this data, it's part of your body, it's biometric data, it's, it's, it's part of you. Like he used it, he had a relationship with that data that was really based on a, it was a professional relationship. It was a, a technology that was, used um, in training but also on the field to support performance management and it was and so he had a very um, analytical relationship to that data and the tool itself that when we started working with together the three of us the first of all the primary focus was how do we establish the protocols that that enable us to um, work together so we all come, come from quite different backgrounds and we all have different expertise to offer and so forth. We had no idea what the work was going to be. All we knew was that we had various different um, things to offer and, and how that occurred, didn't know. We didn't know and we nurtured that and we held the space for a, a really genuine collaboration. Um, there's no hierarchy at all. There's 
um, some sort of foundational principles that kept that the work going when we had so much uncertainty. And that was that we were to do things slowly. My uncle, when we started the company, he was, um, <laughs> he used to say to me, Injimara, Injimara, which is a Wiradjuri word that means to do with respect, with resonance, and to do slowly. And so he really was a guiding presence through this entire development. But ultimately, I mean, there was a lot of people that have guided this work, including Adam's uncle and auntie. Um, essentially, the work has become um, an art piece that is currently on show at the Museum of Discovery in Adelaide. It's, uh, we're about to do the official launch. It was held back because of COVID but it is open to the public um, up until dis, uh, early December this year. And what it is, is it's, um, it's an installation that uses this ancient sacred widow, a tree, a red river gum, as a way of being able to anchor Adam's kinship system and how that kinship system has supported, I guess, the, the entire work, but it's really like the tree is, is called our family tree. And the, the tree is a, is a six meter tall projection of a using a point cloud to visualize the tree. And Adam's data has been repatriated into the tree itself. So what you see is this, um, as the tree at slowly animates, you see Adam's data and you can see specific games that is embedded and enmeshed in the same uh, format in point cloud as it animates with the tree. So it's a repatriation of his data back to country, but also back to his kinship system. And the way that we were, we needed to be, to work out a way, you know, we had this sort of concept of, you know, the, the tree and that, how we were gonna visualize that, but we needed to understand how we anchor the work more into the into country because kinship systems and country are, are you know they're interlinked there's all of this both duality but also interrelationship and interconnection of all things within our culture everything has a way of being able to connect so we used the 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 the, the tree itself and the 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 box that the tree is being projected onto, both on the east and west side of the, the projection, it's a large, large space. So we we expanded out the, what was originally a very kind of flat projection screen into a box. And so that enabled a cavity to emerge. So as you walk inside the tree, instead of what you would expect, which is to sort of the world to kind of close in, the world actually opens up and what you see on the north and the south wall of the inside cavity of the tree are these two LCD screens, which is uh, filled with these beautiful epic drone shots of country, of Atamakna country, um, which is the Flinders Ranges. And what you hear is Adam speaking language for the first time with his uncle, so one is representing the one Kimoiti, Adaru, and the other is representing Mathari. Those two Moitis are at the basis of the kinship system. So everybody relates to either one or the other, north wind or south wind. 
So the, what they are narrating is the creation story of country itself. So Ikara is a sacred place within the within Atumatna country. And as you hear Adam and his uncle narrating this, the creation story in language, that is being translated, the sound files of that creation story is being used to be fed into a neural network, which has been trained with the attributes of North Wind and South Wind. And so the neural network then is taking that input, which is the creation story representing country, spoken by the two men that uh, also represent Aruru and Matari. So they are the, basically the, the wind. So that is fed into this neural network and what comes out is the sound of wind itself, the sound of north wind and south wind. And so as you're moving around the outside of the tree, what you're hearing is a soundscape that is the basis, the, the basis of that soundscape is north wind and south wind. And the south wind and north wind are also programmed to, to, um, to animate the tree. So the direction and the movement of the tree as it, as it swells around is directed by the, this output. So we have in, I think what we've been able to do is show that AI is not just about um, problem states and solving, solving business imperatives, also like addressing a business imperative and having a, a particular problem that then the AI comes in to resolve. What we've done is we've worked out Okay, there, we need to. We need people coming through this space to understand the interrelationship and interconnection of country and kinship system, and to do that, we need a way for we need we need some a, a tool, and that became that became the neural network. So we we didn't decide on this until probably three years in. We did all of the work to understand what are the cultural foundations of this work? What is the conceptual framing of this work? What are we actually wanting to express here? What does the viewer experience? How is this not just a um, imitation of country and kinship? How is it offering something more? How does the work actually support the viewer in making that relational connection between country and kin? So the tool itself, the AI, was only considered once we were really clear about the cultural and conceptual rigor of the work. So it became the tool for you to express what you, and it sounds absolutely beautiful. I'm, I'm so glad your hunch was not dismissed as we often do in life. You know, we go, oh, should we do this? And you go, then your hunch is overridden by all the practicalities of how difficult and this, that, and the next, why you don't do something. It was, you know, I think the one of the reasons why we were fortunate enough to be able to hold that space was because we had really fantastic partners. Like we had a funding partner that was willing to put some, some dollars on the table and say, go for it. We believe in the work, go for it, and not know. And I think that's also really rare these days it's really rare for people to support in the you know within business to support such uncertainty and a process that is unknown 
And I think that's probably what the creative industries do best is, you know, they, they are will they actually, the creative industries hold a lot of risk better. And they support, and because the, the value of the cultural practice is, is known, you know, we, we know that cult, we have an incredible track record of many different examples of how culture has supported innovation. The creative practices support innovation. We know this. Um, so, yeah, it'd be, really, it'd be really great to see how, you know, all the other various different sectors, in particular, um, the, you know, the business world and corporate entities can sit with that uncertainty and hold that trust in a creative practice, a cultural found, the cultural foundations of a work and the creative practices that, that can support innovation. Talk to us a little bit about the awards night and um, we know you couldn't be there, but you, you had someone accept the award for you. Um, just before we go on about the awards, like just back to the project, is it going to be moving around Australia? Like you've mentioned, it's just in Adelaide till December. Where then? Um, we're just in the process of the final negotiations of another re, um, another um, exhibition in uh, Melbourne. And oh, then, great. So, yeah, so <laughs> it, will be, it will be other places. It will hopefully be in Sydney at some stage, hopefully this year. But, um, we're, yeah, and we've got some discussions going on internationally as well. It's been, there's been an incredible response to the work. I, I'm sitting here and I'm excited for you. I'm just, it, it sounds incredible what you pulled off. And I think um, I've just, it just makes me go back to your opening statement of your collaboration with your two brothers that you say the trust and the the slowness that you've you've started this whole project so I think if everything's built on such good foundations um you know it, it can only just grow exponentially yeah I think you know we have to go slow to go fast you know we yes. have um it's often very difficult i mean don't get me wrong like my general company um operations are pretty frenetic but yeah. we are, we know how to slow things down too when needed it's actually very important and to um to actually trust the process to go actually this is not time wasted this is time invested and i think for a lot of things we do in our lives actually hasten slowly is a really good motto yeah yeah I mean so much of the work that we're doing really you know we're we're challenging those you know the the assumed business models that underpin technology you know I think what one of my really uh, incredibly insightful colleagues with the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council group. Um, so that's, um, her name is Sarah Stratton and she's a Maori woman and she's just so incredible. <laughs> Everything that comes out of her mouth is just profound. And she said to me once recently, she said, you know, the difference between our, our Indigenous ways and um, Western ways is that we have this, you know, comes back to these these different 
priorities. One is of accumulation and one is of distribution. And that is really what is at the heart of the, the crisis that we're currently experiencing right now, the climate crisis. You could say the pandemic. You could say many things. If you, if you follow it all the way back to the, you know, where did this start? How did we end up in these places? How is it that we've messed up one of the most incredible planets? Um, you know, how did that happen? How, what happened, what happened prior to colonisation? How, how did people exist and how were people, you know, where did people flourish? during what periods of time. And so, you know, it's, people have such short memories, you know, and that's such the problem here. You know, the, the business models are the issue. You know, we, we, need to, we need to really reckon with that because currently, you know, of course we're, we, we need good leadership and we need good governance and we need, we need individuals to stop hiding behind the surface of, you know, the, the, the company's objectives to actually stand up and say, actually, no, these values are, are more important than, than profit, than the shares, than the expectation to, for, for shareholders to, to be, you know, benefit. Do you think there's been a shift since COVID in the way um, the world, or certainly the way the working world operates, but how people are viewing things? You know, I, um, I personally think social responsibility starts with the individual. You, you can't blame anyone out there. If you walk past litter on the ground, who's, who's you pick up the litter. My, it drives my kids insane because they go, you don't know what's on the litter. I'm just picking up litter. My son goes, do not do that. Go and wash your... I say, don't worry about it. Just pick up this damn litter. It drives me insane. But, you know, we, if we all had an attitude of just in your environment, just look after your environment and the world will take care of itself. You know, I'm not, I'm not expecting to go and sort out all the, um, the plastic drama and, and, and litter that we have. And um, although I was briefly contemplating getting this machine that can actually um, take plastic and then I can make things about it. I thought, no, maybe I should just, that's maybe for another phase in my life. But it, it is social responsibility. It's first and foremost social responsibility. And you actually have to be quite brave to speak out because sometimes it's really not, it's, it's against the flow of where everyone's going. Yeah, absolutely. I think, it, I think individual accountability and but also transparency, you know, that's, there's a lot of individuals that hide behind the, you know, the big business and the, I guess, the, the, the way that corporations have, have uh, been constructed and how they, you know, the, I guess the nature of corporation, but also, you know, our political leaders, you know, that, that, that in, if you look at that as a system, well, not just here, but, you know, worldwide, the various different political systems that we have. And then you, you contrast that with, okay, when, during what period of time did we see good governance? During what period of time was there 
the least amount of war? During what period of time was there equitable distribution of resources? During what time was there a period of, of, of healthy and happy families? And, and, and it was all prior to the Industrial Revolution, all prior to colonisation, all prior to, to those particular ways that we have assumed are the norm. You know, the norm, the, I guess the normative discourse that occurs within technology and all things, all other things come from these particular, really in the, in the broader spectrum of time, they were only just yesterday. So how do we, how do we extend out beyond and, and remember, remember back to, a time, to the times where there was um, both social and environmental sustainability being practiced and being and being very much central to our our daily lives and and well-being because it was not that long ago for indigenous peoples it's not that long ago I think the kinetic pace of our lives and what's happening in technology I think it's just going to exacerbate the whole situation you know there's just so much stuff happening I, I even just I look at robotics I look at AI I, I can't even keep up to date I'm subscribed to about 10 newsletters and for me just to keep you know people ask me what's going on I go well you know I know about my field but I know there's other stuff going on but please don't blame me if I've missed like 10 things because it, it just it's happening so quickly so I think that that's an enabler for us just remembering there's just so much we remember and we just, I don't even we, we have the capability to go back and actually stop and holistically look at it and go, this is where we are, but this is where we've come from. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, they're very, I think that, you know, we, we can, we can look at things through the lens of how, we, you know, ways of being, ways of doing, so ontological and epistemological kind of, um, perspectives but I think there's there's also you know from an indigenous perspective we also understand the role of sensing and presencing and and so how we what we know and what we do is only one is only part of the equation I think having that that capacity to to always think back before we move forward like what is what's worked in the past what is what are we fighting for what's important now but for our children and our children's children like what happened to people when they like at what point did people stop thinking about how their actions were affecting their children and children's children and children's children like from an you know um, different um, indigenous communities within within what we call Turtle Island, but the Americas um, talk about the seven generations. You know, seven generations back, seven generations forward. You know, this this is what futuring is for. You know, being able to backcast, look what worked in the past. How do we make sure that we're not just individually benefiting, but how how are, how are our actions now going to benefit and support our children's 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 children? 
I think for the most part, I'm just thinking here, how far back can I track my family lineage? And I'm probably stumped at like one or two generations. I mean, what an absolute honor that you can go back seven generations and you know your lineage and you can go, well, you know, it's good to have a basis to work from because it, it changes everything. I suppose, and I think this is probably why the DNA um, testing and databasing and everything's taken off as it has because people now have the ability to go back and go like generations back to see where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to know where you come from. It's also one, another thing to know where you belong. And, and that's, I guess, the difference between Indigenous people's cultural identities come from country. So our, So when you know where you are from, it's an incredibly powerful thing. But it's also what's missing, I think, in the way we understand AI and and how, you know, I guess, once again, those sort of collective future imaginaries, you know, we have these such a, because of Hollywood, you know, we have these ideas about what are robotics and what are what is AI and how is singularity going to, you know, play out and at what point and you know what's the metaverse and how how do we make sense of that you know so much of what we're talking about is really daunting for so many of us because it dislocates us even further from country it dislocates it you know technology has this social media in particular has this um has this remit to and well is, was meant to be what was meant to bring us closer together and I think you know so we can argue yes that is the case at some level but it also actually dislocates communities and we can see how how disconnected people can become when you're living in a in a virtual environment you know the actual real relationships and connections that come from from physically being with another and having physical human contact the actual you know we're a species that need that we've seen that through the social experiment that has you know we're still living through because of this pandemic and how isolation has played out in so many different ways we've seen that we've experienced that in a lot of ways technology you know we has of course kept us connected during this time but it's also it also has the risk to amplify that disconnection and and on the surface yes we're we're able to talk to you know 10 different people in um seven different time zones or whatever in one in 24 hours and what value does that bring to us as an individual what how does that support well-being? How really, how, how is that sustainable long-term? I couldn't agree with you more. I, I can see it, uh, particularly with young people raised on their phones. Um, I, I think our, our, I don't think, I know our mental well-being and health stats have never been as precarious as they are now. And I think a lot of it is attributed to social media and this constant flicking on the phone. And look, I'm as guilty as the next because, but I'm trying actually now, I said to, I met a delightful youngster yesterday at a, at a talk that I was in. He said, well, 
he doesn't have any social media. I said, look, you can do me a favor and just get LinkedIn. Like if you've got nothing else, just at least get a professional network, but don't worry about the rest because you're wasting your time anyway. But, um, you know, I can see it with, um, I'll use my son as an example. When he spent too much time on Instagram or something, he gets this um, feeling of unhappiness and disgruntledness about him. And I always know it. And I say to him, you should stay off social media. I can immediately see when you're spending too much time there because you go into a comparison base of something that's not real. And I think you think you miss something in your own life. I think it screws with your brain, quite frankly, Angie. That's what I think it does. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, is that there's some incredibly clever people using their the knowledge of psychology to, to manipulate in humans into sticking you know staying on this on the you know the, the endless scroll you know if you look at the the nature of um cinema and tv as a form of um storytelling and engagement i guess there was you know you go to the movies and you go you, you decide beforehand this is the film i'm going to see yeah it's like an hour and a half or two hours and then and you and you have your experience and then you leave or if you think of you know the days of broadcast tv you have you know we used to have um television guides and we'd say okay this show we know is on 7 30 and this one and then we've got and then you know it's going to be bedtime or we're going to do other things yeah. and that that's the shift you know we've now we're living in a very different period of where the once again the business imperative is to squeeze the product as much as you can to get as much out of out of it for shareholders. So how do you do that? You manipulate the actual product itself and you create new products and new various other different platforms that never end so that you never ever ever have a chance to switch off. That's the prime objective of all of these different platforms don't switch off like don't put the phone down don't you know that's you know once again like where's the where's the governance in that where's the regulation well where's yeah that isn't it yeah well who's responsible you would think that um platforms such as instagram twitter um well we're entering a new phase now with elon musk being a sole owner there but you know, my Instagram, if I haven't looked at it for a while, it actually pops up with little messages. I'm missing something. And I saw that movie. Um, I don't know. It was released about two years ago about our addiction. I immediately took Facebook off my phone because, yeah. of course, it's designed. The algorithm is designed. When you don't go in, it sends you little messages to say, oh, so-and-so is putting something on. I know, I'll just ignore everything until I'm good and ready to go and either post something or actually look at something for you know, 10 minutes, but it is, it's, it's the whole format is to keep us completely and utterly addicted. Yeah. And it's, you know, there is, we use these tools every day and we have, I mean, I was just recently yesterday having to go into my, um, the settings of Google drive and I was gobsmacked with how, how complex this, this um, system actually is and how much the, that this this well corporate or this this worldwide um, giant is intricated 
in every different facet of our lives. Just by looking at the in the back end of the, and it's not the, the real back end, just the settings of, of Google Drive and how much data is being mined in so many different ways is just phenomenal. And and we are the product. Make my numbers think about it. We are the product. You know, yeah. it's not it's not by happenstance if you're talking about a holiday that something pops up on your phone i'm convinced you know and people talk about robots and the security there i go oh please give me a break look at your own social media you know you you post everything on instagram on twitter on snapchat on whatever forum you're on ever and facebook and then you know like if you really wanted to know something about someone you could take all their social media accounts and you could probably get a pretty accurate um you know you'd know who you're dealing with mm. Yeah, and all of these, I think, you know, we've, I remember that first moment in which, you know, on Facebook, um, I, that notification, that very first notification that where you had to give up your right, I remember that very, very, very first one and how shocking it was and the sort of feeling of like, how could this be? You've given us all of this goodness, this this way of relating and connecting to friends and family across the globe and and now you want to take our data like I remember everybody everybody remembers that moment I think and everyone had a sense of like how how insipid and how 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 it's like a betrayal you know yeah how the thing where there was this there was a things would never be the same. Like how, yeah. like you press that, okay, that yes, I agree. And whoa, we're not yeah. going back from this. Yeah. And how, how incredible that moment in time was really when you think back to it, because we as a global community have just given up so much. We've given up so much of our rights. We, as you say, we are in that one moment, we became the product, mm-hmm. not just for Facebook, for within with all of the various different types of technologies that have that have bubbled up because that is now the business model that is that's that's how these how it technology has become so ubiquitous and how it's had got such a stranglehold over us i'm really you know i'm i sound like i'm <laughs> like i'm i'm incredibly um, cautious about technology and I am but I also see that it's incredibly there's such potential as well there's such potential if the if the governance and the regulation and the and the capacity for us to own around own our own data know also be as technologists be really mindful about how we you know what are the what are the protocols around data and how we collect it and how we utilize it and how it's reflective of the communities in which we we are designing these particular products for but also the systems themselves you know how are the systems themselves also a reflection of us as a as a society and as a as a broader culture because if we ourselves can't see ourselves in the 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 tools themselves then there's a major disconnect there's a major problem there i really firmly believe that we as a 
as a team. So our team within Old Ways New or all the various different little um, different projects that we work on, we ourselves need to exemplify the values and principles that are, we are embedding into the conceptual development and the design of these particular technologies. That's where things can shift. Look, I think, uh, I don't think personally there's anything wrong with being cautious about any technology that you work with or any any um, personal data. I think, I think that's a very sane, sensible approach to things. Angie, as the winner of the creative industry, what does this award mean to you? It means, um, it means a lot. I think, um, I, I guess the, it means that the work is, is resonating. The work we're doing is not just being recognised as um, altruistic, but that there is something else going on, and there is value and merit in the in the process. And that's what I mostly care about: is process, not not really the outcomes. It's about how we do what we do. And, if I can be recognised for that, then that's that means the world to me. <laughs> oh, you're such a worthy recipient of this award. Any advice for women for next year thinking of entering? Um, I hope in your own industry you've already earmarked some women to prod them and go, ladies, get, get your nominations in or, you know. I think um, for some women they were either nominated or you could nominate yourself. And um, I don't know which category you fall in. It, it doesn't make the least bit of difference to me because I go, if someone doesn't know about you and you nominate yourself for well, good on you, that's, that's what all women should be doing. So ladies, next year, if someone has a nominated, don't wait for them. Get your name in there and fill in this. I know the application form is a bit of a, it's a bit of a do. So you, you need a bit of time there. So um, just, just keep that in mind. But I encourage every single one of you, if you think, um, if you're in this category and you think you should be in it, then then get in it. Yeah, I think that I think we have this tendency to to downplay what we do, as we've talked about before, you know. And I think that's probably been the most valuable um, phase of this, or the, the most valuable asset of this entire award is that is the once again it's the process, it's the humans and the process that breaking through that glass ceiling and working out, okay, what's, what's stopping you? <laughs> you know, what, what? So I think, yeah, we, we have to support each other as women. I think that's, you know, we hear that all the time, but I also agree that we are, we are our worst enemies as well. And it's not necessarily, you know, the, the other sex or the other or the or society at large i think absolutely that does play a massive part in the experience of and recognition and the and the and the role and the i guess the amount of women or the lack of women in technology but we have to ourselves break through that i think on the other hand i also do think that it is a men's problem too I really do believe that this is not a woman's problem. This is a men's problem. If you look at the history of, of, of how this, how Western culture has evolved. And so maybe what I would ask is, what is what's the role that men can, can take 
within the next iteration of Women in AI. I was at first, you know, when I, when I first saw the Women in AI Awards the year previous and I saw the amount of men in the room, I have to say I was a little bit confronted. I was like, hang on a second, or, or men on the judging panel. It's like, how could this be? But I really, I get it now. I really get it. I think it actually is important. It's really important that men are part of solving this problem. Hmm. Definitely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, for any Women's Day celebrated at companies, I, I think it's an indictment if they're only women there. I go, where are the men? Like, why aren't they celebrating this? And again, I think it's a cultural thing of going, well, the expectation is actually the men need to come in and celebrate the women. And, you know, where do you push this down? You push it down from the top and you go, guys, you will take an hour and you will go and buy your colleagues coffee or tell them how great they are or celebrate some fact because this is what it's all about. It's celebrating it. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm with you on that point, but that's a, that's a topic for another podcast with you and I. So any closing thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with? Look, I think what's really important to note is that this work that we're doing is not, as I mentioned before, it's not just altruistic. It's not just it's not just creative. It's actually being translated into a framework with the World Economic Forum, which is essentially for global leaders and, and the business sector. So the work we're doing is informing that. We've developed a, you know, a range of different ways in which the role of country, so that, you know, is translated through different lenses, but our environment essentially and how we're interrelated and interconnected within it, how important it is to consider at every particular part of the life cycle of when conceptualising and designing AI. Fabulous. Angie, where can um, the listeners contact you? Um, through our website, there's a contact page that's the best the best spot I think I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes and um, obviously if you haven't connected or follow Angie on LinkedIn do so immediately Angie it's been my absolute pleasure speaking with you congratulations again on the award you are such a worthy recipient of it and um, I wish you just all the best in your future endeavors thank you so much for the time thanks Join us again next week for another episode with another award winner. So as I said, it's a series of interviews that I'll be releasing in succession. Uh, so my, my normal um, male-female balance will be out the window for the next couple of weeks and it will just be all the women. So I hope you enjoy the interviews and have a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Mm -hmm.